0: This is the
1: Detroit Sports Podcast Network. Hey, this is Brian Peña. I always join the Vito Vacas, the best Vacas in the United States.
2: This week's 2Bad Ombrés podcast is brought to you by The Athletic, premium coverage for passionate Detroit sports fans. 2Bad Ombrés listeners can get 20% off the first year of an annual subscription by visiting theathletic.com slash DSP.
0: I was trying to get it high.
2: And we are still, still, still not tired on this week's episode of Too Bad Hombres. I am your host, Vito Jerome Cherko, along to my usual broadcast partner, sidekick, and everything in the dock. John Charles Macaroon. And John, how are you doing?
1: Vito, welcome to the weekend. Always enjoy our conversations. I love when I get text messages from you earlier in the week and you tell me, look, we got this guest coming in and this week I'm very excited for our in-studio guest. Who we got this week, Vito? We have Earl the Twirl Keratin, former Detroit Mercy men's
2: basketball star, current Detroit Pistons community ambassador, and former longtime NBA big man. Earl, glad to have you on board in studio this week. How are you
0: doing? Oh, it's my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. I'm doing doing really good.
2: Well, great to have you here. Better weather. We're close to spring, so at least the weather's improving too, you know?
0: Don't curse us now because you know March is here and you know what can happen in March. So I know we got a few good days here. I'm not going to get too excited. I'm just going to enjoy them.
2: Don't want to jinx anything. You are right. Now, let's start off by touching upon your basketball career and how it actually started. So I know you went to Finney High School, to Robert Morris, and then you finished off your college basketball career at Detroit Mercy when it was actually the University of Detroit. Now, to start off, going back to high school, and actually before then, how did your career start? So leading up to going to Detroit Finney for high school.
0: Wow, you know, I, I grew up on the east side of Detroit. Um, you know, I went to Joy Junior High School. That's, you know, I, that's where I guess I first started playing basketball, uh, you know, in junior high school at about age 12, 13 years old. Uh, that's when I got I picked up my first ball, and that's when I, I fell in love with the game. Uh, you know, wasn't very good. You know, when I got started, it took me a while. It was my my career kind of just gradually just went in the right direction. I, um One thing about it, and I always tell the kids, you know, but I had a, a real passionate love for basketball because it, it takes a lot of hard work, uh, especially when you reach the level that I reach, and uh, was able to do that. um You know, each year I got a, a, a little bit better. I, I wasn't always six nine. You know, that kind of helped. You know, when I kind of grew into my body a little bit. Uh, you know, but I, I had a gradual career, you know, in high school back then. And I went to Finney High School on the east side after leaving Joy Junior High School. I didn't start really blossoming until probably 11th grade, 12th grade in high school. Uh, I was six foot four, you know, when I was in high school. Uh, and then when I left, uh, I shot up to uh, the nine my first year of college. So I actually was a late bloomer. And I kind of just took it step by step. Uh, had a pretty good high school career my senior year. Uh, but at that particular time, the uh, PSL was so talented that it's uh, kind of overshadowed by all of the great players that played. And, you know, just naming some of them with Greg Kelser in and, and my class and Terry Durad was in that class and Bruce Flowers and Tom Staten. And I can just I can I can go on and on with some of the great players that played. Lawrence Knight. That was a first round pick out of Northeastern High School was in that class. Uh uh, so it was so many guys. Every school in the PSL at that particular time, at least had two guys that were gonna to go to Division One basketball. And a lot of those guys that I just named went on to play in the NBA with Allen Harding over in Northwestern that played for the Lakers. And, and we all, obviously we know Kelsey was a number four pick in the draft, but that's the type of competition that I was faced uh in the PSL in Detroit growing up. And uh, you know, Detroit's basketball rich at that particular time with players and uh that was a trend that started back with, you know, with George the Iceman Gervin and And Reggie Harding, that grew up on that side of town. Bubba Hawkins, you know, and this this is before my time. But all these guys grew up right in the neighborhood. Eric Money, Cornell Norman, you know, I can just name so many great guys. And you know, Cornell Norman, Eric Money went on to play in the NBA. And of course, you know, Spencer Haywood, and you know that group. And just that's when you know basketball was king uh, in the PSL.
2: So you were tested every single night in the PSL, no doubt.
0: (laughs) There's no question about it. I was tested in my neighborhood as a kid growing up uh you know playing basketball over there everywhere you went uh, some of those names i just threw out there at every playground and every recreation center you were going to run into one of those guys and uh not knowing what they were going to be back then uh, and george Gervin was probably one of the premier players to come off the, the you know the east side of detroit that you know had a uh spectacular nba career and then you know, of course Spencer Haywood was a one and done at the university of detroit as well and you know that that era kind of went through my era of the Kelser and them and then it led on to having your Derek Coleman's and your Chris Webbers and Jalen Roses and all of those guys. So, uh, you know, Detroit's produced a lot of great basketball players.
2: So from Finney to Robert Morris for the start of your college basketball career, how did that end up happening? You go into Robert Morris.
0: Well, like I said, I, I, I wasn't recruited by a whole lot of top teams coming out. I hadn't completely, you know, I was still growing. I was 17 years old. Uh, you know, I, I came out, I was going to turn 18 that, that September and uh, I got an offer to go to Robert Morris College, which was a four year uh business school, but it had a great junior college program uh and I was at the Great St Cecilia where all the players play working out when uh when one of the coaches from Robert Morris was there watching and uh, you know it came to me and offered me a, a chance to go there and At that particular time, Sam Washington senior was living uh his son had already uh committed to go to Robert Morris, and he said it'd be a good idea if you know you and Sam would go down to Robert Morris together. you know you guys could go down there and he'd give you a chance to hone your skills and Get better and then look at you know maybe a a big D one school at that particular time the University of Detroit was really booming uh you know that's back when they had Dennis Boyd and you know they had uh Chester Wilson and you know all those guys and Tyler and Long was just had just just committed to go there and uh you know they had a great team and I always had my eye on the University of Detroit but you know Vital he hadn't reached out to me at six foot five.
1: What was the early scouting report on your game in your early adolescence, heading into college and things like that? How would people describe your game back in the day?
0: Well, when I was in high school, I you know I shot the basketball well from the outside. You know I, I uh, averaged twenty points a game in the PSL. You know I could really shoot the ball. I could handle the ball. But me growing late, I had picked up some skills. I was quick and I was fast. Uh, obviously, things kind of changed as I got taller because back then they didn't allow big guys to to handle until you know until Magic Johnson came along and but uh you know I you know I was not always in the DNBP Detroit neighborhood basketball program skills contest all over the city so I was you know I was kind of forming into my game but the good thing about it I you know I learned how to have uh uh some versatility you know uh, by growing late because I played different positions so I kind of brought the ball up in high school and I shot the long range jumpers and that end up turning out to me being an under the basket defensive player, you know, once I got into uh the NBA.
2: Speaking of shooting the long range jumper, I mean the big man has evolved over the years big time right. to where that's the norm now mm-hmm. among all these big men. You have to be able to shoot the three ball, even like Blake Griffin with the Pistons, right. who's developed that three point shot over time. And then you see the prominent guys really that can shoot the three ball so effectively are Kevin Love dudes like that that have become really sharpshooters from three-point range. But that wasn't truly the case, right, for the big man back in the day, correct, when you were growing up and playing?
0: No, that was unheard of. You didn't see too many big guys that shot the ball from the perimeter. You know, In fact, even in the NBA, Bill Laimbeer was like a rare commodity of shooting the long ball. I mean, he he had a huge advantage because all centers would always run straight down to the post and Lambeer would stop at the top of the key and he had that range and was able to knock down a lot of shots from there. But, uh, you know, the game have, has evolved since that time and now, you know, you're 6'10s and 6'11s and you don't even have back-to-the-basket centers anymore. They all stretch fours and fives now that can shoot the ball from the outside. But you didn't have big guys that had that type of versatility. Magic was at a huge advantage because I don't think it was another 6'9 point guard in the NBA at that particular time. I mean... Uh, you had some guys playing that guard position, but it wasn't another one that was that, w- that was six nine. I think Robert Reed was probably one of the bigger guards at six seven back then. You know, you and George Gervin obviously could play, you know, some three and some two in that position. But I think Magic Johnson may have been the only in the eighties six nine point guard playing and then alone come Penny Hardaway.
2: So back to your decision to transfer to Detroit Mercy to finish your college basketball career. Why did you make that decision?
0: Well what what happened with Robert Morris, they they were known as a junior college. I had no idea. I, they, they they kinda hinted to me that they, they were gonna go division one. Um I didn't know it was gonna be the very next year. So actually I played a year of junior college ball at Robert Morris and that school went into NCAA division one. Uh during that transition period I grew from six five to six foot nine. I started getting recruited. By all schools, because everybody kind of had an ideal, you know, by me being at a junior college that I probably wouldn't stay at Robert Morris. So I had a lot of offers to go to a lot of different colleges. I was getting recruited like a kid out of high school after my first year at Robert Morris College.
2: So now I know you never actually played for Dickie V at Detroit Mercy because he went on to become the AD and then the head coach of the Detroit Pistons. But what was it like being recruited by him and Detroit Mercy?
0: (laughs) It was that was real interesting. Dick came after me and he came after me hard. Um, you know, when he when he found out, you know, through Smoky Gaines that was an assistant coach and his coaching staff, they got the word of what I was doing down at Robert Morris College. Uh he tried to get me out in time to be on that team, that sweet six team that Detroit had. And he wanted me to come in that year. I couldn't transfer the first year. I had to stay in. I didn't have enough hours that would get me into U a D and uh he was doing everything he could to try to get me over there so I could have been eligible to play that year. Obviously, I shot up to six foot nine, but Vital was on me, so I had to stay at Robert Morris for a year of Division One basketball, where I ended up averaging seventeen points and eleven rebounds. That would probably make you a high draft pick right now.
2: Not too shabby. So,
0: <laughs> but uh, he, you know, my conversations with Dick was every day while I was in college. Uh, you know, back then we had no cell phones or anything like that. So at around you know four uh, fifteen, I had a certain time every day. I would go to the pay phone. At the end of my hall in the dorms, and Vitel would call me, and he would yell at me for about twenty minutes on the phone. And you know how Dick is; I was very, very rarely able to get a word in. And you promised me you're coming to the University of Detroit. You're going to be our next guy. You know, he give me his wholesale pitch. Don't lie to me, son. You said you come. So every day I would hear from Dick, and he would call, and I would talk to him. And I was like, I'm coming, I'm coming. You know, and he was, you know, he wasn't convinced until I, you know, school was out, and I ended up signing a letter of intent to go to the University of Detroit. I was recruited really heavily by Indiana State which was kind of uh you know a, a different type of thing because as you know Indiana State had Larry Bird and I actually played uh that year at Robert Morris we played 18 away games cuz we didn't have a facility big enough to play home games so Larry Bird was like actually had transferred uh from Indiana to Indiana State so I played against Larry Bird that was my first uh encounter of seeing him in college uh I made all tournament you know uh with him on a team down there with Stetson and uh and in fact, uh, Bob Heaton that played on that championship team was in that tournament with Denver, and they went after me and Bob Heaton really hard to transfer into Indiana State. So if I hadn't went to University of Detroit, I might have ended up, you know, playing with Larry Bird down there, which would have been, you know, a big deal, too, because they ended up playing Magic and those guys in a, in the a NCAA championship that year. Larry Legend himself. <laughs> yes, and I met him before anybody knew who he was. You know, I, you know, I played against him, and I think he went for like, what, 57 points and 47 rebounds in two games. And... That's how I was introduced to Larry Bird. (laughs) So, could you tell
2: from that that he was bound for stardom?
0: (laughs) No question about it. I hadn't seen anything like it. I, you know, uh, the scouting report they gave me. Obviously, he hadn't played any college games because that year, I think he set out at Indiana. He transferred to Indiana State. Was his his first year playing there. And uh, my scouting report was on the Carlton Webster. I remember that was Marvin Webster's cousin. He was a seven footer, and they was giving me all this info. And they went over. I think Carl Nix might have been on the end of the bench of that team at that particular time too. And they, you know, and at the end of the scouting report, and they said, oh, by the way, they got this guy named Larry Bird that transferred in this year. So, and, uh, you know, the game started, and, you know, Larry Bird pulled up at six foot nine, knocked down a three. Next time he came down, he gave an up fake and went to the basket and dunked on everybody. And the next time he threw a no look, and I was like, God, who is this white kid?
2: You could tell he has <laughs> game right away. Yeah. Yeah, he's relevant. He's definitely relevant. A guy that was we should pay like, hey. some attention to. So,
0: you know, and, the, you know, as the tournament went on, I just kept seeing more and more. You know, I still got the clippings of, uh, where I made all tournament with him uh, in that tournament. But that was my introduction to uh, to Larry Bird.
2: So back to Detroit Mercy now. <laughs> and what's your fondest memory of playing at Callahan Hall?
0: Wow. I mean, people can imagine what Callahan was back then. I mean, Vital uh, did such a great job of marketing and uh, recruiting inner-city talent. Uh, you know, obviously, O'Derry you know, Duraj, John Long, Toronto Anderson was one of the top high school players that he brought in. Dave Niles out, out of Garden City. Eventually, Joe Kapecki came from Warren Fish and. We had so many talented guys, and uh, they brought in a guy named Jerry Davis who's one of the top scorers down in Texas. But when I first came, uh, it was just an atmosphere that you couldn't believe. Uh, The arena was packed, and – Everybody remember the great wins over Marquette and seeing Arizona come in you couldn't get a seat in Callahan Hall it was a, and Dick was pretty much before his time with Mike Bronker because we they had the light shows and they had the screen that you bust through at the beginning and the opening and we had the jerseys that hung out like Marquette and you know it, it, and Dick you know Dick headed rocking he orchestrated the whole thing you know it was a show that you came down there and see and he orchestrated it and uh, that was something that if you were a kid coming out in your own hometown you definitely would want to be a part of it
2: he had the flair for the dramatic,
0: Dickie B. Oh, no question. And he knew how to
2: entice the fans into Callahan to get the crowd roaring. And the, the product was great, I know, at Detroit Mercy at that time, too.
0: Well, he did a good job of, uh, you know, naming his players. I, I'm Earl the Twirl that's been with me all of my life, you know. And then you had John London. You had Sweet Dew and Thunder and Lightning. And, you know, he put all these names out here. And every room that he stepped in, every building that he stepped in, he was loud. And he was Dick Vitale. And people knew uh about the product that he had he sold the product we won a lot of basketball games down there that's what bring people into the building when you're winning games and uh then to the point where we started scheduling tough opponents and we would get wins by the average opponents and then all of a sudden you know we get one of these top teams in the country to come in a uh, minnesota or arizona and if we got lucky enough to knock one of those teams off and people went crazy and that's how he pretty much orchestrated the schedule and each year the schedule got a little bit tougher so um you know, that, that, that's how things went for those years that uh, Vital was there. Unfortunate for me, after the recruiting process of going through everything with Vital, he got so big that the Detroit Pistons wanted him. At that particular time, if we played a game the same night the Pistons played at Callahan Hall, we drew more fans at Callahan Hall than they would at Cobo Hall for the Detroit Pistons.
1: When you got the nickname Earl the Twirl, did you embrace it or was it something else that you maybe wish you would have gotten called?
0: No, I mean, when he gave it to me, I just kind of accepted what he, you know, he said I had moves around. He said, we got to have a name. We got to give you a name. You know, you're going to be Earl. Earl the Twirl, that's it. You're Earl the Twirl, you know, so the, and it stuck, you know, and it's, uh, it's been with me ever since. So you
2: went on to play parts of 12 seasons in the NBA And you started with the Philadelphia 76ers. And you were a part of the 82-83 NBA championship squad with Moses Malone, Dr. J, Julius Irving. I mean, some great talent and some superstars, icons of the NBA. What was it like playing alongside them? And what did you learn from those two that you were able to take with you the rest of your NBA career?
0: Well, that's where it was a real blessing uh, for me because I grew up idolizing Dr. J. Uh, when I was at Robert Morris College, I had these two huge posters hanging on my wall at Dr. J. You know, every time I did an English paper or anything, I'd kind of find a way to write about Dr. J. You know, I was like just Dr. J crazy when I was in college, having no idea that in a couple years that I would have an opportunity uh, to be in the same locker room with him. Uh, but, you know, I, I, after red shirt and sitting out a year at the University of Detroit, uh, I played my first year, which actually made me eligible for the draft because I spent two years at Robert Morris, a redshirt year at the University of Detroit. So my very first year of playing uh, was with Terry Duroy's senior year, and we had a good season that year. And actually a lot of people forget they remember the, the win over Marquette that uh, you know that Vital had, but uh, me and Terry Duroy went into Marquette and did the same thing. We beat them by the same score, 64-63 on a jump shot by Terry Duroy at the top of the key. Dennis Boyd hit that same shot that won it, but that year, they went to the Sweet 16. We made the tournament that year. Uh, we went on. We ended up losing in the first round of the NCAA tournaments. But we had a great year at the University of Detroit. And Durad was uh, drafted that year by the Detroit Pistons. And uh, I thought I'd had a sub-pie year. I was averaging double-double, you know, around uh, 12 points and around 10 rebounds a game. And I didn't think a whole lot about it, but I was eligible for the draft. And, uh, you know, I look up on draft day, and sure enough, uh, I got drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers. So that was like a dream for me to have uh, – an opportunity to go to a team like that. I was trying to figure out what they were going to do with me because at that particular time they had Daryl Dawkins, they had, you know, Chocolate Thunder down mm-hmm. there, and they had Caldwell Jones and Maurice Cheeks, and you know, um, and Andrew Tony came in with me that year, and uh, you know, we had some great players, Steve Mix. I mean, that team was like Doug Collins was actually a player on that team. Uh, my first year going, and back then, you know, in the NBA, it was 11 man rosters. Um, so I signed a non-guaranteed contract that year, and they had 11 guaranteed players. They drafted a kid out of Tennessee State named uh, Monty Davis uh, that would led the nation and rebound it, and that was their first-round draft pick. Their roster rounded out at 11, so I had to go in there and fight for my life to get a job uh, to play with the 76ers, but I, you know, I went in and got the work done.
2: So I bet you could tell with all that talent amassed on that roster that you guys were on the verge of something big. I know the Sixers were knocking on the door for a while there to win an NBA championship.
0: Well, it was incredible because I signed my contract the day that Magic Johnson had that huge game uh, when he went off for the 42 points and 15 rebounds, and Jamal Wilkes had 37 uh, that particular game. I signed, and I was sitting in the stands watching that game. That's the day that I signed with them. Uh, they ended up losing the championship the year prior to that is when they had George McGinnis, and they lost to Portland and you know, and all. So they they, they were always right on the doorstep of winning championships. Uh, you know, My first year with Philadelphia, I thought we had a chance as a rookie. I thought for sure— you know we was gonna win a championship. We had the Boston Celtics down three one that year. Uh, we had ended up coming back, beating us, and uh, we lost in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, you know then my next year uh, we went on and we beat Boston the next year, which was like, and that was just too much for us to because we had to get over that hump of trying to get by Boston every year. And when we beat Boston that year, I think our team was like kind of just said, you know, this was a championship for us. Uh, we went on to play the Lakers and we lost in six, and then we made the big trade over the summer to bring in Moses Malone. And I, that was a key piece for us going on in 1983. And that's when we kind of just ran through the league and uh, swept through the playoffs. We lost one playoff game that year, 67 and 17. Uh, and we won every playoff game. I think we lost one game to Milwaukee, and uh, we swept the Lakers in four to win an NBA title.
2: So, winning that championship with the Sixers wasn't your only NBA championship. You also got a ring with the 1993 and 94 Houston Rockets. Now, how would you compare and contrast those championship squads? How are they similar and how are they different?
0: Well, they're different in terms of of the journey, uh, the perseverance that uh, you saw with the Philadelphia 76ers. I was there for three solid years. Uh, The stories I just told you, the things that we went through, Uh, I always cherish the 76ers championship because that was my first one and uh and plus the work was put in I had an opportunity to have a special moment in that championship series in game 2 when I went in and had to guard Kareem and and I actually did that 2 years in a row but the year that we won it I threw a sky hook over Kareem which was uh you know it's probably my fondest memory uh you know of being a Sixer and uh we went on to win that championship uh, then, years later, I had an opportunity. I got picked up by the Houston Rockets, and that was another great team. I played with one of the, another one of the greatest centers in the league uh and Mckeem Elijuwan that Moses Malone had mentored you know when he first came into the league and he he turned out to be a, a great player. I saw a show every night with him and Otis Thorpe, and uh you know and kenny smith and and Sam Cassell and Robert Horry and you know all of those guys and uh Mario Ellie and uh Carl Herrera you know we had a great team down there the team that mashed together and played together and uh you know, we made a run that year and uh, ended up winning I uh, won another NBA championship.
2: You play with so many great players. I mean you were lucky enough to play with so many great players, including Zeke, Isaiah Thomas with the Pistons. You spent three seasons in Motown. What was it like plan for Motor City's pro basketball franchise
0: well it was great uh me to have that opportunity to come home to my family and all my friends you know that was like a dream for me i mean i was thrilled in philadelphia because we had such a great team detroit wasn't so good when i first got here but like you said those three years with isaiah was amazing uh you know isaiah was a special athlete he was a special player for detroit and uh he kind of willed his way, and you talk about all the great players that were in the league. Magic kind of fell into a gold mine going with Kareem and those type of guys, you know, when they came in the league there. But Isaiah had a team that was kind of built around him, you know. When I first came to Detroit, they wasn't the bad boys. You know, they was the little boys back then. You know, you had <laughs> Benny Johnson, and he wasn't the microwave back then. You know, he wasn't – they didn't have those names. And, you know, it was Ken Benson, Kelly Tipuca, myself, and, you know, uh, even though Rick Mahorn was here. and uh, But we managed to – make it. And I and I looked at the team the first year I came in and Isaiah was talking about a championship the first year that I got here. That's how focused he was. And that's where his mind was at. And uh, I looked around the locker room and I had been to the finals two times already. And I was saying to myself, no, I don't think this team's going to be able to win a championship. You know, I was coming in with with major minutes compared to not getting a lot of minutes when I was in Philadelphia. But when here in Detroit, you know, I was right in the rotation and I was getting, a, a, you know, good minutes playing for them. But I was a strong believer after that first year with Isaiah because we won 49 games and we went to the playoffs. Uh, you know, we came back the next year. We went to the playoffs again. All three years here, we had teams that was 40-plus wins and a playoff team uh, with the players we had. And then they start, they found Dennis Rodman, they found Sally, and that team just got bigger and better. And unfortunately for me, I didn't get an opportunity to win that championship here in Detroit. But they were three great years that I'll never forget because of my family and my friends and the opportunity to play everything in my own hometown.
2: So, by the end of your tenure with the Pistons, you could tell that the Pistons were on the verge of winning something, of becoming the back to back champions that they did end up becoming?
0: Oh, there's no question about it. And uh, a, a, a real main reason for that is because of Isaiah Thomas. You know, he was a true winner. He you know, he had won uh, in college, you know, uh, NCAA tournament. Uh, and on his mind, that's all he talked about was winning championships. That's what he was about. Um, it wasn't about no individual accolades or anything like that. The only thing he had on his mind was to win a championship. And, uh, he willed his way to taking that team uh, with the great pieces of watching Bill Lambert become one of the top centers in the league and adding some solid pieces, uh, picking up, you know, Sally and picking up Dennis Rodman and those type of guys. And eventually, you know, Rick Mahorn came in. I got a chance to play with him uh, my last year when I was here in Detroit. So that team right there was put together and structured and they, you know, they became the bad boys. And of course, Vinny Johnson, John Long, you know, my and then, Another great thing was about that. I had a chance to play with my college teammates and John Long and Terry Tyler. Very cool right there, huh? Yes, no question about it. All three of us were, you know, University of Detroit guys playing right on Detroit Pistons. So who was the best
2: player they ever played alongside in the NBA?
0: Wow, that's a tough question right there, considering I went to Chicago after I left here and there played with go. Michael Jordan. And <laughs> considering I was with Elijah Wan and I was with Moses and I was with Doc and, you know, I played with so many great players. Uh, you know, I, I like to say Michael was probably, the, you know, and obviously, uh, probably the best all-around player. You know, don't want to discredit Isaiah because you know it, it was a thrill. I, I saw things I never saw. Uh, the most impressive player I ever played with, and I always say this, and people look at me, was Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. I played with him in Charlotte at five foot three, the most incredible athlete I ever seen. Fourteen years in the NBA, point guard that did some amazing things at that size. It was unbelievable to see a guy like that perform for 14 years in the NBA. I'm still friends with him to this day, but I was so impressed with, uh, just because of the size factor, but the heart was a lot bigger than what the size was, and he let people know. A lot of people, to me, I think you know Muggsy Bow should be a Hall of Famer because there'd never be another guy at 5'3 that accomplished what he accomplished in, uh, in the NBA.
1: Now, I'm also curious, too, because I loved those Houston teams back in the 90s with Olajuwon. What was it like playing for Rudy Tomjanovich?
0: That was another area where I was blessed in. I had great coaches. You know Rudy T from Hamtramck, Michigan. Here from Michigan, uh, he was a guy that he was a you know he was, he was a coach uh, a player's coach. You know players love playing. Rudy told it how it was. He kept everything simple. Kept everything, and he you know he, he wanted to win, and uh, it, it was a great guy to play for. I, I got a chance to play for Chuck Daly. Uh, I got a chance to play for Billy Cunningham. I got a chance to play briefly for Doug Collins. So I you know I played for some of the some of the top coaches that uh, that coach this game of basketball.
1: When you say player's coach, take us a little bit inside. What does that mean? Does that mean like he kind of knows if the players are, you know, going through tough practices and kind of lets lets them off just a little bit, kind of knows what's going on with each player, treats each player like an individual. What's it like to play for a player's coach?
0: When I say player's coach, that means you can't find find five players that say I didn't like playing for Chuck Daly. I mean, you can't I, – I don't think you can go around and, and you, you can't find too many players that, that say I didn't enjoy that experience. Uh, and you're exactly right. He knew how you know, he knew how to gauge players. He knew how to communicate. He wasn't a screamer, wasn't a yeller, but he knew how to get his point across. He knew how to step back and let other people do things that he couldn't do. He had a good offensive coach and good defensive coach, and he kind of controlled uh, the whole system that was being ran. And uh, he did a great job of that. And he knew how to push people with buttons. He knew how he was a great communicator. Uh, he was more of a, a psychologist than, than uh, uh, you know a coach because he had to understand each personality. And, uh, you know, you had some real personalities, as you know, with the bad boys when you got a Lambeer and you got an Isaiah Thomas and you got a Benny Johnson that thought he should have been a starter and probably should have been with (laughs) Uh any other team in the league. And and you got these type of personalities and you got a Dennis Rodman and you got to think about it. You got to be a little bit more than a coach when you're coaching guys like that.
1: And tell me about uh, Pat Riley. What was it like going up against his teams and things like that? What would you know? What would you need to do to go up against a team that was coached
0: by Pat Riley? Well, Pat was a a fierce competitor. You know, he he had some great players down there and he was a guy That drove his players to to the max, you know, he got everything out of them. Uh Pat Riley had a lot of help because he had a guy by the name of Magic Johnson uh that ran his show for him. Uh that was an extension of what uh what a, what a coach should be. And uh Pat Riley was at a young age just taking over that job, you know, before Pat Riley came in, they had a guy named Paul Westhead that that right now is uh, probably responsible for the way the game is right now. I have a good relationship with uh with Paul Westhead as well because I coached with him down in the ABA and I learned his offense uh he's one of the first guys that that revved it up and he he made the game different he, you know he had guys out of position and he had a running game where you ran and you shot and you pressed and you trapped for 40 minutes of basketball and unfortunately for him he didn't get it figured out to he will this way to a couple championships he won one with the Lakers right before Pat Riley took over and Pat Riley kind of took that system and kind of modified that system and made it his own system but you know you have to you have to give uh Paul Westhead a lot of credit for the style of basketball and uh what he brought and uh it's still holding true. If you look at a Golden State Warrior, Houston Rocket team, and, you know, the first thing you think about is, you know, you remember that Loyola team where they averaged all those points in college and Paul Westhead was like one of the first guys to come out and and make the madness out on the basketball court. And uh, he definitely would do anything he could to junk a game up and to make a game go as fast as it could go.
1: Now, when we have opportunities to talk to former athletes, we love talking about the camaraderie, what it's like in the locker room, traveling the country with a young group of men and things like that. What team would you say was the closest that you were on? And are there any stories that you can share regarding (laughs) being on the road, hanging with the fellas off the court?
0: Wow. I mean, my Philadelphia team, uh, it's going to be 35 years right now. Uh, We still stay in close contact with each other right now. Uh, you know, we have an email account, that you know Andrew Tony runs, and we all keep track of everything that everybody's doing. Uh, we're still a close group of guys. Thirty-five years later, uh, you know, we had a great time. Uh, everybody knew exactly what their role was on that team. Everybody was happy on that team, which is very rare when you can find a team like that where you know guys know exactly what their place is and what they had to do. And I think everybody was happy with what they did. So that team right there was a close knit group of guys that worked together and and accomplished a goal that uh, Philadelphia uh, alone was going after. And, uh, you know, I I can never forget playing those three years with that group of guys right there. That's Bobby Jones. And, uh, you know, Caldwell Jones was a huge influence. And fortunately he was traded away before we won the championship. But I came into the league with a lot of veteran players with, you know, like Daryl Dawkins and Caldwell Jones and, Steve Mix, and, you know, when you're a young guy and Dr. J, you come in with that those type of guys, you learn a whole lot. You learn what the game is about real fast and real quick. And, uh, you know, and Bobby Jones, like one of the great players that uh, Maurice Cheeks, as you know, was coached here for a while, was our leader and point guard of that team. And then Andrew Tony was amazing. That was my roommate, and uh, we came in our rookie year together. So I still talk to those guys. Me and Andrew talk twice a week, and we still all stay in contact. And every time Maurice hit town, I'm down to see him and talk to him. So – that was one of the great teams and obviously, you know, coming back to Detroit, playing with my teammates and playing with Isaiah and Lambeer and those guys were another great team and uh that Houston team. You know, I, what can I say? I was blessed to play with a lot of a lot of good players, you know, and, and it was some down moments, you know. I did spend a year with the Clippers. That was tough. <laughs> that it was tough. Once twelve games the first year I was there and seventeen games out of eighty two. So I got a chance to see both sides of the coin. Uh, you know, and that that, that was rough. I I knew what was uh, more important. and Winning was more important than, uh, than getting a lot of playing time.
2: Yeah, know? there was no Blake Griffin or Chris Paul with those clippers. Definitely
0: was nobody down there. Then all those guys uh, turned out to be some coaches. Uh, you know, Mike Whitson's around in the league coaching right now. Larry Drew's a coach in the league right now. You know, so Mike Cage, I think, is a, a broadcaster. So quitting daily. So we... Some of those guys, but we didn't win many basketball games with that group.
1: Now, a lot of our fans know that you're talking with us. Everybody has blown up our Twitter page. They want to know. Tell us the story about dunking on Patrick Ewing. They want to <laughs> know. I mean, literally 50 messages. Make sure you ask Earl the Twirl dunking on Patrick Ewing.
0: <laughs> well, I got caught in a, a good situation on that. You know, Patrick uh, entered an inbound pass that, you know, I turned around and caught it. He came in and you know, he jumped and he jumped at the wrong time. You know, I was I was a pretty high riser back then, so I caught it, and Patrick was caught up in whether he wanted to jump or go up, and I ended up just smashing it right on top of him. And uh, I guess it's it's gone viral now. Uh, Patrick's a good friend. Uh, by no means, I talked to him about it because years later, I remember playing against him in Charlotte, and he came into Charlotte and dropped like fifty some points one game. So Patrick was a great player, and he's you know he's coaching down at Georgetown right now, so he's doing a good job with that.
2: Quite the moment though.
0: And oh, to remember dunking no over Patrick Ewing. Well, no question about it. Uh that, that was a good moment. You know, I'm playing with Michael Jordan and uh you know, we had some good battles. I and if I'm not uh wrong, I think Patrick might have been in his rookie year when that happened to him. So yeah, so that, that, that was a highlight. <laughs> There's no question Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be. Yeah.
2: Now I like how you brought up this guy right here maybe could be a coach. Because he's a psychologist by day. Yeah. Stroking his ego. I know you felt really good about that comment. But you're right about reeling in personalities. Getting mm-hmm. these players, right? These star players to check their egos at the door. And it's easier said than done now. And I know you got the chance to become an assistant and then a head coach in the ABA with the Long Beach Jam, an assistant in the WNBA, and with numerous teams, including the Detroit Shock in 09 when Rick Mahorn became the head coach. So you served on his coaching staff. Right. But first and foremost, how did those coaches that you had throughout your pro basketball career help mold you into the coach that you became as an assistant and as a head well, man?
0: Well, you try to, you know, you try to learn a, a little bit from each one of them. Uh, you know, I had guys that were kind of similar. You know, uh, Billy Cunningham was probably one of the hardest, uh, you know, direct, like just hard nose drive you a perfectionist type coach that I had. Uh, Chuck Le- Chuck Daly, though, I spent four years with Um, Incredible guy. You know, I love him to this day. Uh, he was an assistant when I first went to Philly. A lot of people don't know, you know, I know Chuck better than, than anybody can know in Detroit. You know, Chuck was an assistant coach under Billy Cunningham. And, uh, you know, he wasn't daddy rich back then. You know, we called him Big Money Grip back in the day because he, he didn't have no money then. So, But, uh yeah, he had a way with people. I mean, uh, talking to him, uh, you know, he he knew how to use a great communicator. Uh, he knew how to push the buttons when he had to do it. You know, uh, he was always calm. Uh, He understood when a player was upset and and he knew to stay away from him. He'd give him a chance to cool down. He'd come back and talk to him. He understood uh, what practice would mean. He understood that uh, you're only going to get attention span for a certain period of time. Uh, You would have an hour and a half practice with Chuck. And he would tell you before practice start that we're going to go for an hour and a half. And he would name the five or six things that he wanted to concentrate and work on. And he would tell you, it's up to you guys. I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. If we get it done in an hour and a half, I guarantee you won't see me. We're starting right now, and it's 3 o'clock, you know, and at 4.30. If I, you see me at 4.30, then you, you'll be surprised because I'm going to be out of here. And we, I want you guys to come in and give me everything you got for an hour and a half. And guys bought into that. They come to practice, and they work their butt off for an hour and a half, and that way you got a lot of a lot accomplished. You know, a lot of coaches that keep you for three hours, and – they lose you after the first hour and a half and those other times it's just wasted time there so he was really good at doing that uh, in preparations and getting prepared and he had no ego he had a, he, you know he, he would step back and he would let his assistant coaches do their job he would let you know uh, whoever was uh, the defensive coach or the offensive coach that's what he would let he would oversee it but he would let them run it so he you know he, he was good he was nice and calm and I think uh, most players they, they are a reflection of what their coaches are and uh, the way he was able to stay calm and uh, command, uh, you know, respect from each one of his players, he got it back.
2: So now back to one of Chuck Daly's former bad boys and Rick Mahorn. What was it like being on his coaching staff in 09 with the Detroit Shock?
0: Well, I think Rick was, you know, was similar and uh, he, he learned a lot. You know, he, he, me and Rick came in, in, in the league together. Uh, we both were rookies and he was in Washington. And that's what me and Rick actually met on the basketball court because uh, neither one of us was getting any playing time. So we met in the games uh, that we played because we both would get garbage time because he played under Wes Unsel and Alvin Hayes, and he, he bagged those guys up. And obviously I was with Doc and all those. So we used to get in the game and we were like, hey, man, we got to find a way to get some playing time. <laughs> I said, so we got to score some buckets out here on the court. So, you know, we met, you know, right on the court right there. And Rick, uh, you know, he learned a lot. Rick was always a clever player, uh, a unique type player because, uh, you know, Rick wasn't fast. You know, Rick didn't jump high, but he had a unique body. Uh, So he had to think the game more so uh, than use his athleticism to play the game, Uh, pulling a cheer on Kevin McHale, Uh, you know, knowing how to tick people off and get under people's skins and, you know, knowing how rebounds come underneath the basket and above the rim and using his size and his strength and using his mind. And uh, I think that carried on to him uh, to become a pretty good coach. As you see, you know, this summer he won the big three uh, coaching that team there. And uh, we went to the Eastern Conference Finals uh, with the shock the year that he had the team here. And, uh, Hopefully one day he'll, you know, he'll get back in it again because, you know, I think he's, he can make a real good coach, you know, in the NBA.
2: So in the time that you spent as an assistant in the WNBA, from all of your different experiences, how would you say the WNBA and the NBA are both similar and different to one another?
0: Well, you know, the WNBA is, uh you know, one thing about the ladies, they run their plays, they run their offense. You know, it, it was so much fun, you know, being around them. Obviously, you don't have the athleticism that they have in the NBA. They don't jump as high. They don't run as fast, but they will run a play to perfection. Uh, it's probably some better shooters. You know, I had a chance to be around Diana Taurasi, which is I have huge respect for, uh, one of the greatest athletes. I won't even say woman basketball player because she was, like, incredible. Her work habits and it's obviously from all the things she's accomplished throughout her career, but the time and the effort and the passion that she had from the game was off the charts, Uh you know, I would put her up against any guy as far as shooting the basketball, and I, you know, every day that I would walk in that gym, I don't, you know, early in the morning, she would be the first one in there. She'd probably work out an hour before practice start, getting her shots up and doing her thing every day, and then she would come and go through a practice. She drove her teammates, and she's a true winner. And uh, it's obvious that you know she's still going right now, and she's still competitive. But uh, yeah, women's basketball is uh, you know, it's a beauty to watch. You know, watch these girls In fact, they execute so much sometimes too much because. They'll pass up an open shot and you gotta let them know that you know to take their, take their shots when they gotta have them. So me and Rick, we really enjoyed it. The girls were like fantastic uh I, I just hoping that more uh young ladies you know start getting involved and start watching and get more support. Uh, my daughter's playing at Georgetown right now. Uh, I'm happy to say that. You know, not the, the fact that she's playing, but the fact that she's at Georgetown, too. So That's a great but school. She's a chance to walk on and uh, have an opportunity. The Big East Tournament's coming up this week. They play Villanova. Not getting a lot of playing time, but it's just a pleasure to see her out there warming up and being a part of a team.
2: So you coached in the ABA, too, and you guided the Long Beach Jam to an ABA title and had the chance to coach former NBA stars, including, I want to talk about this guy, the worm, Dennis Rodney. <laughs> What was he like to coach?
0: Well, I tell you that was a great experience for me. Uh and I had some great coaches with me. You know, Scott Brooks, you know, I coached under him for a year. That, you know, he's on to be a you know, a great NBA coach now. And I mentioned Paul Westhead, uh that, you know, I learned his offense and you know, we had a great time uh doing that. So I spent two years with those guys learning it and then I took over a team myself where I had some good players. Uh by me being a, a journeyman in the league and a bench player. And the, all these guys were trying to reach the next level of the NBA. It kind of just, it was it was a perfect fit for me because I knew what it'd take to survive. I knew what it'd take to make it to the next level. And these guys that I had, that's what their goal was, is to try to get to the next level. And I could kind of pinpoint certain areas where they needed to work, things that they needed to do to improve their game, and things that would get them over the hump. And I was pretty successful at that Uh The fact the year that I coached that team, I had Geno Carlisle that uh, went on to the Portland Trail Blazers for a stint. I had Matt Barnes that uh, has been around the league forever now. I had DeMar Johnson that came back from a car injury, got himself back together and went on to play in the NBA. I had Derek Dow that was local here out of Eastern Michigan that got picked up and played a couple years in the NBA. I had a kid by the name of Joaquin Hawkins that played for the Houston Rockets that me, I kind of hand-picked him myself to knew that he had the talent to be able to be a pro, and he ended up playing for Rudy, and I put some calls in for him and got him a tryout, and he ended up not only playing for the Houston Rockets but starting for them. I had one of the best Japanese players uh, in in the history of Japan, a Utah Tabusi that ended up playing for the Phoenix Suns for a year. So I had a bunch of great players uh, that played for me down there on that team. Uh, Gennaro Pargo came down and played for me for a short stint, and then I was blessed to pick up Dennis Rodman came in and he was trying to make a comeback and get back in the league. And, uh, you know, it's easy to coach Dennis because, you know, Dennis is going to go out and he's going to grab you, you know, 15, 16 rebounds a game. Uh, he's going to pack the house because people came out to see him, and that was huge for us to have him down in uh, the ABA. Uh, he didn't play a whole lot of games, but the games he came in, he played in the championship game for us, and uh, he might have pulled down 14 or 15 rebounds that game. He was pretty much at the end of his career. But, you know, I didn't know when he was uh, you know going to show up. I didn't worry about him coming to practice. Uh, I learned that part from Chuck Daly, (laughs) Uh because Chuck, if Dennis missed practice, Chuck would always ask Dennis, "Hey, which car didn't start today?" You know, because he never worried about that. You know, and 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 Chuck would always say, "Uh, "Is Dennis different? Yeah, he's different because we got nobody in this locker room that can do what Dennis do. That's what makes him different."
1: As a fan of NBA basketball what's your assessment now of the current league? Because when you look at it, you got supremely talented individuals, but a bunch of them are now working together and there's a handful of teams at the top. And it seems like the the disparity between those that are championship contenders and those at the bottom, it seems like there's two classes right now in the NBA, those that are title contenders and those that are basically racing to the bottom and tanking. What's your assessment now of the current state of the NBA with these super teams and kind of where a lot of teams are trying to race to the bottom?
0: Uh, You know, I don't think people really realize when they say super teams, because the NBA always consisted of super teams. Uh, You know, I just mentioned some of the teams, you look at that Philadelphia team, what did we have? We had two MVPs of the league on the same team with Moses Malone and Dr. J, and then you add a Bobby Jones and an Andrew Toney. You know, we had three or four All-Stars on that team. You go back, I can go back to the Lakers team with Jerry West and with Will Chamberlain and with Elgin Baylor. That was a super team. You know, so you think about it, and you think about the history of the game, and you know, even with uh, you know uh, the Lakers team with Magic Johnson and Kareem and Jamal Wilkes and Norm Nixon, all those guys were all stars, and they all were super teams. So, but it just wasn't—we weren't hugging and kissing each other and meeting, you know, and, and we weren't uh, talking about it in the off season and, and talking about joining up and, and and doing those type of things. But you had great players on all those teams, even back then. The game has definitely changed now. The rules have changed now. It uh, it's became more entertainment than it was a grind out uh you know basketball game where anybody was capable of winning games for you on any given night. Uh you know, in our time, you come to a game and it could be a guy that come into a game that uh you know would be a, uh, win a game for you. You know, it'd be a Clint Richardson or it'd be a Earl Kieritan that would be impactful, you know, out on the court that win a basketball game. Basketball became pretty predictable now when you go to a game and you, you know, you see the big three and they do their thing and they come down to the fourth quarter and And it's more entertainment now. And uh, I I think we were more skilled back then. Uh, I think guys coming into the league young, um, they actually got to learn the game. It takes them two or three years. It's very rare you find a few that come in and they're ready to go right away. But the process is usually a couple of years before those guys develop into quality players.
1: Do you want to see the Cavs and the Warriors potentially for the fourth straight time in the finals? <laughs> a lot of people that message us are like, you know, we're kind of losing interest. It's the same two teams, <laughs> but I think it's a magnificent feat when you look at LeBron James, I think it would be seven, eight consecutive finals. I think we got to give him the respect that's due for getting to the finals that many times. But at the same time, when we look at Fans here in Detroit, it's always about to come up, and we're waiting for that next group to come up. Do you think the likes of a Boston, a Toronto, or maybe a Houston can step up and maybe dethrone the top teams right now?
0: Well, it's a lot of parity, you know, in the East. You know, it's no question about it. I, I you know, I know Boston is, uh, you know, winning a lot of games, but that Toronto team is pretty impressive, as as we saw last night. Uh, <laughs> you know, they they're capable of very, you know, well coming. You know, Washington, uh, another team that you know that, that could surprise some people and come out. Uh, you know, and you look at the West, and you know, Golden State. If they stay healthy, that's a tough team to beat. Uh, even though the Houston Rockets is making a case right now, uh, if they continue to keep playing the way they're playing, and uh, you know, with Chris Paul, you know, going with Hardy now, those players playing together and they got good chemistry. Mike D'Antoni is a uh, another old teammate of mine. I, you know, we didn't talk about my uh European career, but I, you know, I played with some great players in Milan. Uh, Mike D'Antoni was one of my teammates over in Milan, and Bob McAdoo. Uh, was on the same team and Dino Minagine that's in the, in the hall of fame here is one of the best Italian players to ever play and I had the opportunity to play with him. But Mike was a great guy and he's a great coach and uh you know he likes that running style and up and down pace and uh he's doing a good job with those Houston Houston Rockets right now. So it is some teams out here that's entertaining. Uh we always fall asleep on San Antonio. Uh you know when playoff time start you know that Pop's gonna be you know he's gonna be in the running for things out there. You know, so uh it could be interesting. There's going to be some real interesting things coming up uh, come playoff time.
2: And Kawhi's coming back in March now, supposedly. Right. So he makes a huge difference. We know that much, Well, too. they're always
0: quiet. You know, you you never, like, San Antonio is that team that, you know, you just take a sleeping pill on them. And, mm-hmm. you know, you look up and, you know, and they'll hit the playoffs. And then all of a sudden Pop pulls it out of his hat and they, they knock off one of the, the big teams in the league. And you look up and San Antonio's right there in the, in the finals. And when you talk about winning championships, you know, you have to talk about San Antonio because they're one of the teams that's been, you know, In a constant stay uh, in the NBA Finals.
2: So you stated it yourself. The style of play has changed from the 80s and 90s, and for a lot of guys that played in the 80s and 90s like yourself, you see a huge style, stylistic difference in play in the NBA. And a lot of guys from the 80s and 90s don't like the style of play now. (laughs) Uh, What are your thoughts on how it has changed over time? And are you a fan of how the game is played
0: nowadays? Well, let's take one example. Uh, Let's take an Isaiah Thomas and uh, a Stephen Curry. I don't know the stats, but if you took Isaiah's stats and Stephen Curry's stats from the first three years, I I would want to say that Isaiah might have had the edge. I don't think a lot of young people understand it. And he had the edge in an era where the game was more physical where, you know, if you came down and you pulled up and you hit three shots in a row on the fourth shot, you might go through the floor. Somebody may take you out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you drove down the lane, you know, you might get 30 stitches in your head going down the lane. You know, so you, we had big guys that played with their backs to the basket. Everybody had a big center in the league that dominated. And now that's, you know, evolved to stretch fours and fives. And they kind of clean the game up now where, you know, you can't really touch anybody anymore. You know, what would that Isaiah Thomas be like in an era like it is right now? Where you couldn't hit him, where he didn't get banged and he didn't get bumped, he did what he did uh, in a league that was a physical, knockdown, drag it out type league. I, can a Stephen Curry survive, uh, you know, in a league like it is right now? Would he be able to do the things that he do? Would a Westbrook last for eighty two games the way he takes the ball to the basket? And when we had the Rick Mahorns and the West Unsells and the Alvin Hayes standing the Bob Laniers and them type of guys standing in the lane? Would they allow those things to happen? Uh, You know, you can't compare errors, but, you know, you look back and you think about the way the game was playing. That's why it's hard to to go from one generation of players to the next because things were definitely different as far as rules and as far as the way players played the game.
2: Well, guys like Isaiah probably could have better numbers. And I know you're getting at that. And it's hard to say for sure. Obviously, we can't compare eras, Mm -hmm. But still, you think Isaiah Thomas, how great he was in the 80s, 90s, if he played nowadays, he probably could put up the Steph Curry numbers. And not the three-point numbers. I know he didn't have that three-point shooting prowess. But overall scoring numbers across the board, you know, Isaiah would be maybe even way higher than Steph Curry at this point in Steph Curry's career.
0: We all remember that game down at Joe Lewis Arena where he scored all those points in, in a minute and 33 seconds. I mean, he had some, it's some shows that he put on that a lot of people as time go on and forget about. But uh, he was an incredible uh, player that, that did some incredible things in his time.
1: What do you make now of the current 2018 Detroit Pistons with the addition of Blake Griffin?
0: Well, I think that's this—it's like kind of a wait and see type situation. Uh, you know, you put two great players together. Andre Drummond obviously is evolving into a great player now. He's a two-time All-Star. Uh, with Blake Griffin, you just hope that he, you know he's able to stay healthy. Uh, you wonder if he's the same guy he was five years ago because he pretty much relied on a lot of athleticism. Uh, he's had a lot of injuries over the last couple of years. But at the same time, you bring a little bit of star power to the city of Detroit, uh, and I think you just got to wait and see how that situation is going to work out and what they add to it. Uh, in comparisons, you kind of look uh, at Jordan and him playing together for the Clippers, and they had Chris Paul. Uh, the success that they had was not uh, a whole lot of success. Uh, they were knocked out of the playoffs every year in the first round, and you know, and then Chris Paul took off and left, and the, the team kind of, you know. So now you got that same kind of, I mean, I would, I would say Andre and Jordan are similar to where way they play. And, you know, you add Blake Griffin to that, you kind of got the same dynamics with, you know, those two players playing together. So I think it's kind of a wait and see what you add with it, how they, they learn how to play with each other.
2: And speaking of that dynamic in the front court with Drummond with Blake Griffin, how huge is it to also get Reggie Jackson back? fully healthy to get him at point guard and playing alongside that big time duo in the front court.
0: Well it'd be interesting to see how those guys uh mold together and work together. But the thing about it is not gonna be magic. It takes time for those guys to learn learn how to play with each other. And every time you see a trade uh you see something like that happen it, it always take a little bit of time for these guys to get used to each other and learn how to play together even when they put the big 3 together in Miami they kind of struggled i know they got there but they couldn't win it in that first year because they really had to get a feel and guys got to take roles and got to understand who they are basketball is not an individual sport it's a team sport teams and every every team have to have guys they have to know their roles and that's why I cherish our Philadelphia 76 team because everybody knew their place and knew what they had to do, and you get it done as a team because individuals will never win championships for you.
2: So, early you've stayed in tune with basketball over the years in a variety of roles, including as an assistant, obviously, uh, as a color commentator, including for Detroit Mercy men's basketball games where we met officially, right. <laughs> um, also as a Detroit Pistons community ambassador. And then I also love this story that you went back and got your bachelor's degree in 2011 from Detroit Mercy. And I read now this might not be true but that you came back and got your degree because you had promised your mother way back that you had wanted to finish up your college degree. Uh, what made it the right time for you to come back when you did and then how fulfilling of an experience was that for you and your family?
0: Well, I never lost sight of uh, of doing it, you know, even when I was in you know, all these places I've been, you know, I played 15 years of professional basketball, but I neglected something that was extremely important. Uh You know, my mother, she didn't have an opportunity to go to school. You know, my mother will be 101 March 29th, Um, you know, and back in those times, uh, she was born in 1917, I want to say, you know, and she didn't have an opportunity. She couldn't even go to school. And uh, I just felt a huge embarrassment for me not to be able to finish my college uh, degree knowing uh, that she didn't have my father. He never had a chance to go to school, period, at all either. Uh, I just felt that was an obligation. and something I need to uh, feel because I had not only an opportunity to go, I had a scholarship to go. So I felt a strong commitment to be able to do that. And even the fact that I'm going to be out, uh, you know, talking to our youth uh, and communicating the importance of education to them every day, I knew that was something that had to be accomplished. And uh, just so that I could let kids know, you know, because sports, you know, we know it only lasts for a short period of time. It's only something that you do. It's a privilege for you to be able to have that, but your education uh, is a must. And uh, I wanted to put myself in a situation not only to please my mother but to be a role model uh, to all of our youth.
2: So I know all three of us will be around for Motor City Madness, which is rapidly approaching, happening March 2nd through 6th at Little Caesars Arena. And with that being said, I already brought up how you've called Detroit Mercy men's basketball games throughout this season. How would you evaluate this season, the regular season that Detroit Mercy did have?
0: Well, it's been a rough year. Uh, you know, it's no question a lot uh, about that. Uh, a lot of, you know, some distractions, you know, throughout the course of the year. Uh, the team really never got a chance to me to jail the way I, I, I thought they could have. I, I, I think they record... Don't indicate the talent level that they got. Uh, I mean, they got some guys on that team that can flat out score the basketball. They probably got uh, six guys on that team that had thirty plus games. You know, we saw Prince get that the last game that he played in. uh, You know, we 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 seen uh, Josh, you know, go off for thirty points, and Corey Allen go off for like thirty nine points. Jaleel Hogan with thirty eight points last year. So. the offensive power is there. There's no question about it. They got some guys on that team and, you know, bringing in even a young Jermaine Jackson that came in this year and had a couple 30-point games that he played in. So it's a matter of uh, getting those guys together, getting them to learn a defensive system that Bakari is trying to to work with them to be able to learn. Uh, They got to become a better defensive team. They got to keep building on uh, what they got there. But it was a little disappointing, I have to say, uh, to watch them lose the number of games that they did lose this year. Uh, I know the Horizon League is coming up, so – We'll see. You know, things can happen in Horizon League uh, playoffs. It's one and done, and we've seen teams come out of nowhere and walk down there to the tournament, and they got a perfect opportunity because it's going to be played down at Little Caesars Arena.
1: Now, Earl, a lot of young people listen to our podcast, and I know when we talk about basketball, I'm of the I'm of the opinion that always defense wins championships, and obviously, the kids nowadays they just want to score the basketball, they want to dunk, they want to shoot the three. If someone's listening and you can give them advice on how to improve on defense, how can we get these kids to play better defense? How can we get them to put forth the effort? Because you can make a solid living in the NBA if you're a solid defender. How do we get the level of defense up across NBA basketball and even down to the colleges?
0: Well, I, you know, I work Greg Kelsar's camp every summer. We do about four camps throughout the city every summer, and uh, I get an opportunity. I'm there pretty much, you know, for the whole four weeks, and I get a chance to talk to a lot of youth and. I always tell them the importance of having a well-rounded game, and I always tell them how I survived and made it in the NBA, and it wasn't because of offensive ability. It's because I was able to guard multiple positions, from the three to the four to the five. Uh, you know, defense is something that anybody can do. If they, it's all about hard work and desire. It's all about wanting the ball and being a good rebounder, wanting the ball more than anybody else out on the court. And so I always talk about them, about the intangibles that you need to be able to learn how to do that can help you have a job. It's not about going out, getting 30 points or 40 points a game. And, uh, you know, and I used to talk to my, you know, my minor league players about that. One of the reasons why Joaquin Hawkins uh, made it in the NBA, because my players thought I was crazy because Joaquin Hawkins came off the bench for me, but he was a guy that could win games for you on the defensive end of the floor. He could guard multiple positions. He was 28 years old, but he could guard a one, a two, a three, and for a short period of time, he could guard a four. And for me, I never seen a guy that could step into a game and take charges like he did at the end of ball games and be impactful on that side of the court. And that's the guy that I picked and they looked at me and I said, well, this guy right here could definitely be an NBA player. I said, you guys are dreaming because they pay guys millions of dollars to score 20 points a night, but they don't have guys that can come in off the bench and do the intangibles. And sure enough, You know, he ended up being in that spot. So I encourage the young kids out here, you know, to work on all aspects of your game. You know, do the things that nobody else want to do. You know, Dennis Rodman found something that, hey, he took it. He he just quit shooting the bat. He concentrated in one area, and he excelled like never before in that area and became one of the greatest rebounders in basketball. So look at some things that people don't like to do, you know, things that's possible for you to do, and work hard at it because you never know. That can take you a long ways.
2: More of the dirty work at times, crashing the boards, playing the solid D. I think of Ben Wallace oh, as yeah. well, about no what he became—he was champion. a no offense yeah. guy, truly—but but was a great rebounder, great yeah. shot blocker, rim protector, and look at what he became.
0: Hard work, you know. When you talk, to, you know Ben Wallace and Dennis Rodman; those guys, they put the work in. Nobody can stop you from working hard. That's something you got control over. Every time you step on the floor, if you give hundred and ten percent and you're working hard, nobody can control that but you.
2: So now I read that you're taking part in the Motor City Madness uh, Champions Brunch, Tuesday, March 6th, 10 a.m., Little Caesars Arena. And you have a few other guys taking part with you in this uh, session. And what do you know about it so far and what it will exactly entail? Well,
0: it's going to be a Q&A session. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm down there with James Buda Edwards and, uh, and, and Rockin' Rick Mahorn. You know, we had an opportunity to get in there. And uh, all those guys know what uh, championships are all about. You know, I think we all in that room have championships on our hands. So I think we're going to do a nice Q&A session down there. And uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed because my daughter's in that Big East. I'm hoping that, you know, I talk to them. If she gets to the finals of the Big East, I'm going to have a big decision to make. <laughs> it will be then. <laughs> I feel you
2: with that, definitely.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: And so. then Lauren Jabara is moderating the session. We know Lauren mm-hmm. as well, local mm-hmm. media personality. Oh, she's so. doing a
0: great job. I, I watch her at Oakland University games. And, uh, I mean, she's really excelling in, in that area as uh, being a sideline reporter. in uh, our basketball knowledge seems to get keener. You know, every game that she goes out, I've been keeping an eye. I told her that the other night when I saw her, that I was impressed with her her skill level.
1: Speaking of the NCAA, do you think with what's been going on with the investigations, they'll actually take a look and look to seriously fix what's going on? It seems like the NCAA has been taking some hits in the last 10 years.
0: Well, I I think it's uh, a lot of adjustments that's going to have to be made. Um, uh, Some of this this stuff is uh, to the extreme. I mean, obviously, you know, giving a kid $100,000 in college and, you know, that's you know, I now what I do uh, disagree with with the NCAA. You know, if a kid's you know needs a coat and he's cold, and you know, if a kid's hungry and he needs a meal, you know, I, I don't think they should be deprived, and I don't think it should be a violation uh, for a kid to be able to have those things. Some of these kids come from uh, you know different backgrounds and low income families, and they, they don't have the money to be able to do the things. And and uh, we look at it at the end of the day, the NCAA is making a huge profit, you know, off of. Uh, what these kids do in college basketball. Uh, obviously, yeah, we know they get a free education. to go to school there. But I, I don't know if you take that free education and compare it to the television contracts and all of the money that the NCAA brings in now. So I think it's got to be a strong look. And they, I think they need to find a way to try to do some things to, to help these kids uh, because they are uh, products that's uh, you know that's bringing in a whole lot of money for a whole lot of people. And maybe they should be taken care of a little bit better. I need, I think they really need to look at that uh you know, you saw that Fab Five thing, and he talked about Chris Webber and the trendsetters that they were, and how everywhere, you know, Chris Webber said he would walk in and see his jersey for sale in the windows, and his, you know, his the pants that he was wearing, and and then he couldn't even go out and get get dinner, you know. So uh, when you look at that, then you see, he says, why am I I'm, I'm here? You know, everybody's getting paid, but me. <laughs> it's like I got to go do something about it, you know. And guys had to leave early and go in, you know, going to the NBA. So. I mean, some adjustments have got to be made. You know, it's no question on on, on both ends. Uh, you know, I don't I don't uh, agree with the just dis- outright cheating and all right, but it's got to be a way legally and uh, you know a right way to be able to do it where um, both win win for both parts.
2: Yeah, I think of these universities too. They're making so much money off of these players using their likeness without the players' names on the back of these jerseys. And I think yeah. in football as well, collegiately, yeah, Johnny Manziel at Texas A and M. Those jerseys are selling like hotcakes. And he couldn't benefit at all from <laughs> right. any of the sales of those
0: jerseys. Right. And uh that that, that that's a problem right there. You know, uh, they they're using them to to profit and yet, you know, what they'll come back with is okay, well they're getting a free education. But I, I don't I don't know if that adds up. A, especially when you're talking about a guy like Janet Mansella or Chris Weber or Jalen Rose and those type of guys.
1: Now before we let you go, let's play a round of let's get to know Earl. A um, couple of quick hitter things that we just get to know you and uh, our audience gets to know you a little bit better. Are you a Pepsi or a Coke guy?
0: <laughs> I just have to say Coke. Last movie that you saw in the theater? What was the last movie? I, uh, Black Panther. I just went to see Black Panther. Yeah. Yeah, I went to see that.
2: If you didn't play basketball, what would it have been that you played?
0: Wow. Um, you know, I was a cross-country runner when I was in high school. I don't know if I would have pursued that, though, as a <laughs> as a future. I mean, I was, I was a strictly a basketball guy. I love the game of basketball. Uh I didn't take a strong interest. I was too small to, to be a football player. I always thought about being a receiver, though. I was pretty fast and could run. I always looked at that part of it, but too many legs there, so uh, probably would have been a track guy if I hadn't, um, you know, hadn't gotten involved in basketball.
2: What's your favorite sport to watch outside of basketball?
0: Wow, um, you know, I, I, I like football. I like the NFL. You know, I, I'm pretty hype uh, when it comes down to. Um, you know, the Super Bowl and that type of thing. Baseball is a long, lengthy season. Uh you know, at the end of the season in October, <laughs> uh it kind of heats up for me. But actually I you know, I sit at home and watch a lot of WNBA games. You know, I, I don't I, I coached in it, but I you know, I, I do have some joy and my friends think I'm you know, how can you I say, Well I you know, I like it, you know. So
1: Lafayette Coney Island or American Coney Island?
0: Oh man. <laughs> wow. I'm gonna go with Lafayette. And I guess I'll
2: leave you with this. Now, it's not a like getting to know Earl kind of deal, but what's the biggest sales pitch that you can make regarding the Motor City Madness and how we can get people to show up for these games?
0: Well, it's going to be an exciting brand of basketball, Uh, you know, to have the Horizon League, you know, right here in the city of Detroit. uh, It's going to be affordable pricing for you to come down there and see a number of games. Uh, and the Horizon League has been a pretty exciting league. Uh, we had a lot of pros, uh, the likes of when Butler was in there, you know, we when you had Haywood Gordon and those guys playing in, uh, in the Horizon League, uh, you know, and, and it's been some pros that come out of there. It's a good chance for you to come and see good mid-major ma- basketball with some up-and-coming stars that you may not be familiar with. Uh, You know, the doors open down there and you come in there and you see great teams. And what could be better when you got two of your local teams right here with Detroit Mercy and Oakland University is going to be in the building down there. You know, it's it's a must-see. You know, if I'm giving it a a vital pitch, you you can't miss it, baby. It's going to be exciting. There's going to be some primetime players down there. So get your tickets and get them early and come down and watch the Horizon League playoffs.
1: You can follow Earl on Twitter at Earl, the twirl, anything else you'd like to plug or anything anywhere else people can find you and the things that you're involved in at Detroit mercy or in the community.
0: Well, you know, with the Pistons, I, you know, I have to give, you know, shout outs to our owner and, uh, Tom Gores and, uh, and as well as Aaron Tellum for all of the great things that they're doing, uh, since moving back to Detroit, you know, I just did a, a, a good, um, appearance today with rise where, uh, we're we're doing some interaction with uh you know with the police and uh the community and with some of our youth in, in in inner city high schools and trying to develop that relationship uh back uh the alliance have teamed up with us to put together speaking panels and let the kids express themselves about how they feel about their communities and how they feel about their relationships with the police departments and you know we just had a great uh black history month uh with the Detroit Pistons as well uh, you know, I looking at some of our uh, black leaders in the community and, and acknowledging them and, uh, you know, during the course of games. Uh, you know, we teamed up with PAL. Uh, it's just a number of, of great programs that uh, we're getting involved with. Uh, me, uh, as an ambassador to the community, I get a chance to go out and I get a chance to communicate with a lot of our youth, uh, even with Farm Bureau uh, we're doing the makeovers inside of classrooms. We have a contest every year that we go in, and that's another great thing that we're doing because it gives an uh, inner-city school. Uh, we did a school, I think, on the east side where I grew up at, uh, not far from where I grew up. They hadn't had a library in 10 years, and we went in and did a makeover and put a library back in there. So it's things that – and they're going to continue to keep improving and, and, and doing uh, big things uh, you know, in the city of Detroit, and uh, I have to give our ownership – Uh, You know, Tom Gorse is uh, really walking the walk when he said he wanted uh, the Pistons to be impactful uh, throughout the community and uh, throughout Michigan. And we have done a lot of positive things in our community, and we want to continue to keep doing those things.
2: And Motor City Madness for the Horizon League Men's and Women's Basketball Championships once again taking place March 2nd through 6th at Little Caesars Arena. And with that, Earl, Earl Curitan, thanks for all the time. It was a pleasure having you in studio
0: this week. Vito, you know, it was great coming here. Glad I had an opportunity to sit down and talk to you. I see you all the time. You come by, you, you know, you give me a high five and, you know, you keep rolling. So you, you invited me down, so it was a pleasure for me to be here working with you. John,
2: thank you much for all the time. Thanks to you, John, to everybody else tuning into this week's episode of Two Bad Ombreis, and with that, have a great weekend and we'll talk to you again soon. It's me.